You are listening to Inspired Caring, episode number 90. Hello, welcome to Inspired Caring. I'm your host, Michelle Magner. If you are caring for an older family member, this is the podcast for you. Each week, I bring insight, tips, inspiration, and strategies to help you care for the people that you love without losing yourself along the way. Having cared for both of my grandmothers, I've helped manage everything from hospital stays, households full of belongings, to navigating senior living and end-of-life care. And I've worked in senior living as a result of that experience, serving my residents and their families as they've been on this journey too. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Inspired Caring. We'll see where it puts it. Hi, Amy. Hi. (laughs) <laughs> it's funny calling you Amy because I'm used to I know right <laughs> um I'm so glad that you are up for having this conversation about trauma because sure. I know very um I don't have a lot of education in this world uh, this arena so I am really interested to hear like what is trauma and how does tra- trauma present itself? Sure. And I think a lot of times as family caregivers, the experience that we're going through is actually pretty freaking traumatic. Yeah. Um, but I think there's also a lot of trauma from our past that mm-hmm. resurfaces sure. as we are in a caregiver role. And um Like I had a senior who was at my rehab facility and she had a broken hip and had had surgery and what actually kept coming up during her, and she's in her seventies, her rehab stay was the abuse that she had sustained from both of her parents in her childhood. And so it made, um, I'm being ginger with my language because I want to be aware and sensitive and I'm open to being educated, but it just, it, I felt so deeply sad for her because she was so wounded. Yeah. And here she's also aging and Mm -hmm. trying to recover from this other traumatic thing. So anyway, absolutely. So starting at the beginning, (laughs) (laughs) um, what, what is trauma? Like how, how is it defined? I think that, um, probably the most basic definition of it is just when something is happening to you that threatens you in some capacity. So that can be very vague and wide open. Yeah. Um, and you don't feel a sense of control to stop it. And so there, there really needs to be both of those components that you do feel a sense of threat that of threat. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and from what we understand now, from, you know, just our, our understanding of the brain and how it works. We understand that when a traumatic event happens, there's this entire, it it sets into re and it sets into motion this chain reaction chemically in our body. And that chemical reaction is kind of what ends up defining whether or not something is traumatic or not for us. And so, um, 
you and I can have the exact same experience. And for whatever reason, you may feel more threatened. Mm -hmm. And so you may have a different response physiologically in your body. And that information then gets stored as trauma, where for me, maybe I may not experience that way. I may not feel that sense of threat, that sense of urgency. I don't have that chemical chain reaction, which involves adrenaline and cortisone and all different kinds of chemicals in your body. And so my body doesn't store it. My brain doesn't store it as a traumatic event. Um, the other thing we understand is, is that um, sometimes it's called big T or little T. Okay. We can have really significant traumatic events like, you know, uh, being mugged or something, uh, being in a horrific accident, or we can have a series of small little traumatic events um, that accumulate, like accumulatively are actually more difficult to resolve and to uh, feel safety in the present. Uh, so there's lots of different things. And then there's like just this complex and chronic trauma, which mm. happens in, you know, children who are abused throughout their childhood, uh, women who, women and men who experienced domestic violence for years, where you just live in a constant state of threat, people who grow up in war-torn countries, um, even people, we're starting to really understand medical trauma. And so people who have lived their entire life with illness and have spent, you know, are in and out having surgeries constantly and just what that means, that sense of, am I ever going to feel better? Am I ever going to be better? That that's a threat to ourselves. And so I think we're starting to understand that there's a great deal of complexity to trauma. There's not one thing. We don't necessarily have to define it as a Vietnam vet anymore. It's, mm. you know, we have a much yeah. more expansive understanding of it. I mean, I have a friend who says we're all just walking wounded. Yeah. And I, the older I get, the more I have this sense of undercurrent that most of us at some point have had some level of trauma. You talk about big T and little T and complex mm -hmm. and chronic. And I mean, are any of us getting through this unscathed? <laughs> I don't know. Well, and I think, I think something that's, you know, collectively, I think um, how you responded to the threat of COVID is, is something where like collectively worldwide, mm -hmm. there was a sense of immediate threat, you know, especially when, when I, I know, uh, here in Omaha that <clears throat> it seemed like it was, it could be threatening at any moment, you know, we could be under siege like New York city and, right. and, and then there were people who were just sort of casual about it, but if you were, if you were somebody who really worried about it, who took precautions, who were really scared about what that meant for loved ones, that may be a collective trauma that we all experience children, everybody, you know? So I, I think, I think there's truth to that. There's, um, are you familiar with the ACEs study? No. Okay. So, um, this is where a lot of trauma research came from, but, uh, I, I'm not sure which insurance company um, really started to look at, there were some connections between people who had similar health conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, even certain kinds of cancers. Um, they started to look at what are some risk factors that are not related to health, um, outside risk factors. And 
Um, this resulted in, I think it was a 15 year study called the ACE study mm-hmm. where they came up with 15 sort of traumatic things that people live through or have experienced. And the higher your ACE score, the more likely you are to have these wounds and the more likely there's a physical impact on your body, on your well being, And even it, it, the, the number of the higher your ACE score, the more, um, the shorter your lifespan is, which is incredible. Like that's how much it affects us. And so this research started a chain reaction of really understanding trauma a little bit better and its impact on the body and how and why, so that we can start looking at how to, how to reverse it. Um, and there is a lot more research that's starting to come up, come out, but it's Mm -hmm. still very much in its infancy about what are, what are some of the, what are things that we can put in place to reverse it? You know, we can't change the fact that maybe we lived in a very dangerous neighborhood growing up. We can't change that. What can we do to keep ourselves healthy and reverse some of that stuff? So that's that's really exciting. And there are some things that are clear resiliency factors. And one of the biggest resiliency factors we have are relationships with others and having connection with others, which is why, you know, um, being a caregiver for somebody can, can be life-changing because that caregiver is the connection and that's our biggest resiliency factor. So is it the ACE? ACE? ACE. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you Google it, you will find more information than you'll ever want. <laughs> but, but the really cool thing is to take it yourself Yeah. because um, then you have a sense of your own ACE score and um you know, a lot of, a lot of, um, trauma informed care is now looking not at what's wrong with you, but what, what, what has happened to you? What have been your life experiences that get you to the place that you're at right now? Because it's a much better understanding. It's a much more complex understanding of how people show up is related to all that other stuff that they're walking around with every day. Yeah. No. And I think that language that you just used, how people show up, like here we are um, operating within our families, operating within workforces. We have people in government and, and leadership, but like everybody has a background and a childhood and potentially these different levels of trauma. The two things that are coming up for me right now are how can trauma manifest in ourselves? Like, mm-hmm. how does it present? And then I'm thinking about like a trauma scale. You said in some people, something would maybe not induce that chemical reaction mm-hmm. where in another person it might. Yeah. And I think that one of the, um, I don't know if concern is the right word, but I think con- areas of conflict is where we judge other people's trauma and say, yeah. well, it's not, it's, that wasn't that bad. Right. And right. so then now we're in this like judgment shame cycle and <laughs> it's really confusing, confusing as a person who has experienced something as perceived as trauma. So, okay, let's start with just how does it show up? Like how, what are things that would maybe be happening in our bodies or our lives that could yeah, be so- from trauma? I think um, one of the coolest explanations I have ever heard of trauma and how it's stored in your brain is kind of this idea that 
most of our memories are stored in our brains in a part of our brains where we understand them from start to finish. So there's a linear pattern to them. There's a story. Okay. Um, and we can think about, you know, our first day of kindergarten or something. And we can think about all these different details and we have all these pieces, but we can tell it as a story. Trauma often, sometimes trauma gets stored in our brain in a way that we can tell the linear story. But anytime that chemical reaction happens in our body, um, where we feel that intense stuff, part of our survival mechanism kicks in and we start to store pieces of it all split up. Um, and um, the best description I've heard of it is it's like a viewfinder, like those old school. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you like put the little button down. And yes. The, the and so shifts. it's not really a story. If you take all the pieces apart, you don't understand it. They're just all one little file. And that's how our brain stores it as all these little tiny little files. So tiny little pieces without a start, middle and end. And the problem with that, with that is that anytime we see something or smell something or sense something that is similar to one of those tiny little files, we can then our bodies can go, here we go again. Uh-huh. We need to prepare. We need to get ready to go or save ourselves. And so flight, fight, or freeze kick in because we feel like we're there again. And so those are called trauma triggers. And we may not even understand why we're experiencing it. We may not know, we may not have any memory of a smell or a color or, you know, the feeling of a plastic bag, or, you know, it can be this really, really benign stuff that we experience every day and we can't make sense of it. But all of a sudden we may experience, you know, sometimes it's just our heart beating fast and we don't understand why sometimes it's confusion. Sometimes it's, um, anger. It can mm. come out as anger, um, frustration, and, and there's no explanation for it, but usually there's a physiological response. There's something that happens, sweaty, um, palm sweating, some kind of response that says we are in flight, fight, or freeze. Um, and for some people that means we just shut down completely. Um, I think we all understand, um, this idea of, I, you know, I keep pulling back to vets because I think that's how we first mm-hmm. learned about trauma, most of us. Uh, and so we think of, you know, hearing fireworks and crawling under the table. That's that shutting down stuff. Um, extreme and an extreme response to it is what we call disassociation, which is we just go away and mm-hmm. mentally we leave our bodies. Um, and that's just, it's all, it's very instinctual. It is, it is how we saved ourselves. It's how we are continuing to walk on this earth when we've lived through traumatic events because we're all survivors and, and our bodies have figured out how to make us survive. Um, but it doesn't always work well with relationships. And, you know, so, so a lot of times that's when, when people have experienced a rate of trauma, then their substance use to, to make it stop. Um, yes. We see people who really isolate um, have extreme anxiety. And sometimes those are really, those are kind of extreme manifestations of it. Difficulty in relationships, difficulty maintaining relationships, um, because maybe we are, you know, very excited or not excited at all. And so that's hard for other people to, to connect with us. Um, And so we may see people who are hypervigilant, 
and they're just always on edge all the time. Um, but then we can also see people who are blunted and, you know, nothing, nothing seems to get them riled up. And, uh, so their, their sort of zone of tolerance is really different than, than someone who maybe isn't dealing with that every day. So um, when you were describing the physical visceral reaction that maybe somebody has when they're triggered, like that sounds so much like a panic attack or anxiety attack. And, and I, I really believe in people taking care of themselves and their mental health Mm -hmm. and seeking medical attention when, when they need it. Um, I feel like almost everybody I know is either on an antidepressant or on some (laughs) sort of anti-anxiety medication. Yeah. And obviously mentioning COVID, like we all just lived through this really traumatic world event. Is there Mm -hmm. a way to navigate the trauma without a medication? I think in those cases when it's warranted, it's so critically important because otherwise we can't function. Um, But is there a way to take advantage of neuroplasticity or a retraining of our brain? Yes. Yes. <laughs> All yeah. of those. I mean, I think there's, there's great value in um, starting to really connect that those somatic responses, all of those physical responses to, to start to recognize that they're happening and become aware of them and, and making you, you can make an active choice early on, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. when you're starting to experience that, you can start to do grounding and do some different activities to basically reset yourself and say, hey, listen, this isn't, I'm not there anymore, right? This traumatic event isn't happening. Sometimes physical grounding is the best way to remind our body that we aren't back where that really scary thing happened. So we don't need to be fearful. Um, and EMDR is a, is a therapy that, um, that is, has been used for probably about 15 years, I think, um, that is super highly effective in, um, in addressing some of this stuff. So it's a therapeutic approach that isn't, uh, you know, it's not medication mm-hmm. and it basically what it, what EMDR is, is it's not a talking therapy. It is a somatic therapy where, um, we use eye movement and mm-hmm. a bilateral stimulation to help this is really bizarre, but it helps bring our processing on board in such a way that we can process the event that happened, whatever it is, or the series of events or many events very quickly we can teach our brain to process it and put it in the space-time continuum so that it doesn't take the memory away. It's not hypnosis, but what it does is it helps us to understand that this is a bad thing that happened to us, but then our body doesn't need to respond to it anymore. Because even if we have a trigger of it, you know, even if we have, even if I smell a smell that brings me back there, it may bring me back there and I can think, wow, that was a really awful thing that happened to me, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's still happening to me. And so it helps the, the brain and body understand that I'm not still stuck there. It kind of pulls you out of that. So that's a really that, I mean, that is right now 
the most effective treatment for okay. addressing trauma. Um, but I think there are lots of things that people can do. I think self-care and, you know, there's so much about mindfulness right now. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because we do understand that slowing down and paying attention to one thing at one time, it helps our brains slow down and we don't, and we can pay attention to what's happening in the here and now. And that grounds us, okay. you know, that, that keeps us grounded all the time, which is hard to do if you're a caregiver, because you feel like you probably have to do a hundred things at once. Right. And it's hard to take time to ground and to take care of yourself. But, you know, that's the other piece of it. Um, we have to take care of ourselves because otherwise we're of no use to anybody. I mean, you cannot give what you don't have. And if Absolutely. you are at capacity and your bandwidth yes. is shot and you're trying to juggle however many things, a lot of people in a caregiver role are also caring for young children or children or a partner mm-hmm. um, as well. Um, when you talk about grounding, like two things are coming to mind. I didn't know if you could just elaborate on that. Like yeah. I've heard of earthing. Is that what we're talking about? Or is it like, so, there's a yeah. lamp, there's a pencil. <laughs> yeah, there are, there are various ways to do grounding. And so there is kind of this emo or um, physical grounding you can do, which is probably more of what you're talking about with earthing. It's like really paying attention to the fact that there's a chair underneath me, mm-hmm. um, really uh, making sure I can solidly feel my feet on the floor, maybe touching things around me, grabbing onto my chair. Um, so I can physically feel a space underneath me. I'm not floating in space and time. I'm here in this room right now. Mm-hmm. Um, a really quick way to do that is to look at the four corners of the room. So you just like stop and you acknowledge that there are four corners in the space you are, um, or you can, you know, um, another really nice, easy way to ground is to look at your hands and just pay attention for a couple seconds to your hands you recognize that your hands are your present hands. You have that paper cut on there that you did, that you got yesterday. It's not your hands from 20 years ago. Those are your most beautiful present aged hands. Um, And that's a nice way to do some of that physical grounding. Um, Then there's mental grounding. And mental grounding is just, I am going to stop my brain by thinking of something that I don't necessarily think of. So counting It kind of pulls your brain into a very rational space. It takes higher level thinking. And so it's hard to function on that emotional level. You're, you're basically saying I'm pulling my brain from downstairs to upstairs and I'm going to do that higher level thinking. So spelling, writing is a good one. Um, Anything that requires multiple steps and not that you have to do the multiple steps, but you know, you know, how do you, how do I make macaroni and cheese? Let me just m- m- go through what are the steps I need to do. And sometimes when we are really, really in an emotional state and we are really overwhelmed or we are really trauma triggered, coming up with something is hard to pull us out of that. And so physical grounding is the fastest way to get us back there, mm-hmm. but we can get physically grounded by doing really simple things like feeling the ground underneath us, looking at the four corners of the room. And once we start doing that, then add in something like start counting something in the room. How many blue things are in the room? Um, How do I spell my kids' names backwards? Whatever is your go-to. 
and there, and you can have one or two that you always go to, but, but your brain can't function in two places at once. So when you start making your brain do that really physical or that real mental workout of counting or categorizing you, it takes you out of that emotional space in your brain and you can just then slow down. Cause we're having all these thoughts coming at us, but like, really, we can only think one at a time. Right. So right. it sounds like that's helping us get refocused on yep. something other than yep. the traumatic thought. So that can help us like settle down in the moment when we're having yes. that visceral reaction. Like what keeps coming up for me is we're having this conversation is being in the hospital room and waiting for a doctor to, to come in. Yes. to like give us a diagnosis or a prognosis oh, of where yeah. things are yeah. heading and like what needs to happen next. Um, so those are good things. The other thing is um, a couple of things that I really like to do. These are, these are like, um, it's kind of like when you hit control delete on your computer and kind of reset the system. Mm -hmm. So there are ways that we can reset our own system when it, this is, these are resets for your nervous system. So when you're feeling like intense anxiety, you can, um, anything bilateral will kind of start helping that. So rocking, there's a reason why we rock babies. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes when we rock babies, it's very soothing for us as well but either forward, backward, forward, backward, or side to side. So if you can sway side to okay. side or kind of move your feet from side to side. Um, if, you know, sometimes people don't like to do really physical things when other people are watching. So if you're uncomfortable resetting yourself in front of somebody else, even just tapping on either side of your leg. Um, so if you were to sit, be sitting in a chair and mm -hmm. you just put your hands very casually on your thighs, you can go left, right, left, right, left, right. And that, that bilateral stimulation helps calm the brain. Um, wow. And yeah, another, a, a really good reset that I like is um, it's like a bear hug. And I don't know if you can see me, uh, hopefully you can, you kind of take one hand and put it under your armpit right here. Okay. And you take the other hand and you just kind of give yourself a really tight squeeze. Um, and as you do that, I'm going to keep talking. Yeah. But as you do it, you just kind of feel it. And it's helpful if you, if you feel safe enough to close your eyes and just sort of feel that hug and don't think about it, just feel it. And usually what happens is within about a minute, your body will let out a sigh like it's involuntary. Mm. There'll be a sigh. You may feel yourself yawn mm -hmm. and that's the reset. And when you hit that point, you have reset your nervous system, which is really cool that we have the ability to do that. Um, so yeah, you just kind of sit there like that and give yourself a really big squeeze. That's amazing. And pay attention to your breath. And it's really cool when you do it. Like I would recommend that you do that with a little bit of peace the first time. And you will really, when you feel that yawn, come on, it's kind of this cool thing. Like, wow, my magic. I can do this to myself. Um, it's like self-soothing. It is soothing. Isn't yeah. It? We don't hug ourselves enough. Um, and then the other thing we can do is um, it's another reset like this. And um, they're really basic, but this one, you, you kind of relax your shoulders and you, move your neck, you look one side mm -hmm. and then you 
kind of twist to the other side. And then you find a neutral and you look down, you don't move your face, but move your eyes and look down to one side, it doesn't matter. And you just kind of hold that gaze for, you know, probably 30 seconds, you don't have to count it. And then go back to normal, you know, just like a normal straight gaze and then go back down to the opposite side and do that for about 30 seconds. Same thing will happen. Your body will usually let out a sigh or a yawn, which means that your reset is done. And then a nice way to close out is just to kind of do the twist again. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when you do that, you will have a greater range of motion and you'll feel like kind of a difference in your shoulders, which is really cool because that's where a lot of people hold, hold that is right here, kind of in that part of your body. So those are just like really basic resets that you can do um, all the time. Those are uh, amazing. And like, you can do a lot of those things, like you said, super subtly. So even standing in line at the grocery store, right? it may right. appear like you're crossing your arms, but really, yeah, you can just be like, I'm really frustrated. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just sit there like that, or I'm cold or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then, you know, when you have space and time away, which probably is hard when you're a caregiver, but, um, Another really, really cool way to reset your body is called TRE. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can look this up. There are a bazillion uh, YouTube videos that walk you through TRE. Mm-hmm. But it is a practice of um, it, it, it's a practice of bringing about vibration in the body mm-hmm. to release trauma that's stored in the body. And it's a really, it's a really quite amazing. Um, it's a longer term. It, it takes about 20 minutes uh, to do it. And, but it just involves, there's nothing tricky about it. It's just a matter of um, you do kind of quick fatigue of the muscles mm-hmm. in your legs. And then it, uh, if, you, if you watch the video, it'll walk you through it. But Dr. Berselli is who is kind of behind TRE. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really, it's, it's really quite effective. Um, during kind of during uh, the height of 9-11, um, a lot of the first responders started using TRE at the end of shifts. And there are still police houses or precincts in New York City that end every shift with TRE because oh it's God. so good to just let go of all that stuff and before you go home. Yeah. And a lot of trauma therapists use TRE so that they're not taking on secondary trauma, which is, is what would happen for a caregiver, right? You are, right. you are assuming a great deal of secondary trauma just by bearing witness. And so um, that medical trauma, if, even though it's not happening to you, in a, in a lot of ways, if you're a familial caregiver, it is happening to you, but then you're also the secondary, you're also experiencing primary and secondary trauma as a result of it. And so that is really hard on your body and just your mental capacity and just, Mm -hmm. you know, there's so many implications of that. And so finding ways to take care of yourself in a meaningful way is really important and to discharge some of that out of your body. Well, yeah, you cannot um, keep adding on, adding on, adding on. You see those videos about how heavy is this glass of water and, or, you know, how much is 
put in this glass, but how heavy is this glass of water? Well, the glass of well, the weight doesn't change, but how long you hold it yes. impacts yeah. the weight yeah. and your ability mm -hmm. to hold it. Yeah. And, and I think, I think there's a, 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 like a third layer of complexity. If it's a caregiver who maybe you didn't have this wonderful childhood and now you are caring for somebody um, so you're experiencing all of that in the present while it's triggering all this stuff from the past or, you know, just anything that's unresolved. It doesn't even have to be, um, that you were necessarily abused or, but just anything that's unresolved, it would just be bringing that up on a daily basis. And that's just, um, it's hard to, to just carry that all the time. Right. And I think yeah. just feeling seen and validated in that is yeah. a first phase for people that yeah. um, caregiving is hard enough as it is, mm -hmm. but from the outside, not everybody knows our pasts yeah. or our history right. with these, with the people that we're taking care of. So <laughs> right. again, like going back to easing up on judgment of other people, right. of thinking what people should and shouldn't be doing for their yeah. family members, like you have no idea. Right. Right. What someone is carrying with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is really amazing. So it feels like there is hope that we can reset our yeah. thought processes and be on the other side mm -hmm. of trauma. Most, yes, most definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And for people that are really just like, I'm just up against it and I'm not, this isn't working. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, what should they be looking for on the internet as resources? You mentioned the TRE, the ACE score, HDMR. Mm -hmm. E-M-D-R. E E-M-D-R. Uh -huh. I'm thinking HDMI. Don't look up <laughs> HDMI. You'll be full of a tech stuff. Right. Um, I'm just, I'm, I think these are amazing resources for people to check into. And I, and what's coming up right now is, well, I'm stuck in this situation. I'm going to do this to get through each moment, 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 but I'm starting to lose hope. Yeah. You know? Um, and I really believe there's always hope. There are resources in the community that. Oh, absolutely. Can we are, I think, um, in Omaha, I think we are very fortunate because there, there are some trauma therapists who have not only, who are not just incredible practitioners, but I think they have made it a mission to ensure that many therapists in this community are trauma-informed mm. and are beginning to be trained to address trauma in a really meaningful way. And so, you know, by holding the trainings themselves, I mean, they have become um, sort of gurus in their own right. Um, and so I think there are a lot of trauma-specific therapists. Um, and I think that, so there's a lot of resources in this community, but I think in general across the country, I think we are just becoming far more aware of trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think that insurance companies, <laughs> you know, are starting to realize that we need to take care of people mentally because it affects them physically. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so, you know, I think that insurance companies are starting to catch on that we need to provide mental health care. And so I, I think a lot more insurance companies are um, making that a possibility. But even if, even for people who aren't insured, there are a lot of sliding scale fee programs. I know I work for Heartland Family Service mm-hmm. and we do, we do, um, if, if you do not, if you're not eligible for insurance, we do sliding scale. And there are a lot of agencies in the area that, that, um, that provide care, mental health care for, for anyone. Well, and I'm thinking for people that work for a company, there are a lot of EAP programs, yeah. employee yeah. assistance programs. And I don't know if those are being utilized to their full extent. Absolutely not. And most EAPs um, have it set up. I mean, it's almost standard now that you have five, five sessions of therapy before it even becomes, uh, I think they can do up to five is mm-hmm. pretty standard. And for some people, five is enough to give you some skills. You know, some people don't need, I think there's also this notion, the really cool thing about EMDR therapy is it's super super fast. Mm. And so people can get in, they can, they can do therapy for six months and be, you know, really feel like they have nothing plaguing them like they did when they walked in the door. It's not like these years and years of laying on the couch, like, um, like psychotherapy used to really, you know, talk therapy. It just, it doesn't, it's not like that. It's, it's far more, it's, it's, it's really focused on being brief, brief interventions. So I think that also helps. And when you feel like you have no time, I think the other piece of this is COVID. The one positive thing about COVID is we all, we were talking about this, everybody does Zoom now. There are a lot of um, therapy resources that are via Zoom. So even if you can't get away, you know, if you're really housebound because you're with somebody who really can't be left alone. If you can go find a private space for 45 minutes, you can get a therapy session in. Um, and I think that's a really cool option. Even if it means your closet floor or a bathroom. It, absolutely. Or, bathroom. And, and the, I believe therapists are starting to become like, you can find somebody at any time, really day or night because yeah. of time zones and technology. So Yes, this is true. And I, I know that um, BetterHelp and there's several online ones that are, like you said, it's, you may have a therapist from anywhere in the country. And some for some people that feels really safe too, mm-hmm. to not be face to face, to not have it be somebody who they may run into at church or at the grocery store to have it have this real sense of anonymity. Um, some people aren't ready to have it be anything but that. Right. So there's lots of options. Mm-hmm. I think this has given me a renewed sense of hope that, oh, good. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's nice to know you're not alone. Yeah. Everybody is dealing with some thing and mm-hmm. knowing that maybe what I'm experiencing um, that feels really severe is validated. Yep. And yeah. And it, go ahead. I, I think that that brings up a really important part because I I was talking about connection before and that being resiliency. I think the other thing people can do when they are, when they are um, involved in anything that really, 
you have to build up your connections mm -hmm. and you need support of people who are in a similar situation so that you can just go, oh, this is where I'm at. And there isn't judgment and there isn't, you know, it's just like somebody who can say, yeah, I've been there too. Mm -hmm. I've felt that way before. It's okay to feel that way. Um, it's, it's validating. It makes us feel like we're human. We don't start to question that kind of really basic thinking. We don't start to deal with shame on top of everything else because we're feeling a certain way that that piece of connecting with other people who are either, you know, providing caregiving or have done it at one time. Mm -hmm. I think there's a ton of value to that. And there's a shorthand, right? You don't have to go into all the details. You can just say, Oh, wow. Mom was really tough today. Mm -hmm. And that might be enough for somebody else to go. I know where that's at. Right. I think there's so much value in that. And I think when we talk about it, it doesn't get stored in the same place. It doesn't get like stuffed and buried that, and then something we have to deal with on our own. Um, and I think sometimes when we're balancing so much and juggling so much, um, we get stuck in this idea that we have to be subhuman, that we have mm. to be super, and we have to be able to manage all this. And, um, and somehow by reaching out to anybody else, it's admitting that we're not, quite as superhuman as we think we are. And when there's a lot of people counting on you, it's hard for you to think that maybe you're not. So if you are caring for children and a parent and a spouse and all those people, you have to be able to reach out to somebody else that, you know, has no skin in the game. It can't be somebody from inside. It needs to be somebody from outside that can just be like, yeah, I hear you. Mm -hmm. Yes. See you hold space for you. Yes. Caregiving is so isolating mm -hmm. and so many people, I mean, it feels like everybody that I know again is going through this in some level and they're looking around like, am I the only one? It feels like I'm the only one, but nobody's yeah. really talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and isolation. I mean, there are studies that show isolation has health impacts like six alcoholic beverages a day and 15 cigarettes being smoked like there are some significant of loneliness yeah because we are wired for connection we need it and so when we don't have it we are you know we are missing a vital piece of what we need to survive mm -hmm. yeah I just think that's so valuable podcasts like this where people can just hear other people talk I think but even if even if getting together is not real zoom calls or whatever you can do where you have somebody that you can just reach out to that just understands where you're at yeah more so, than so helpful so powerful yeah well yeah. thank you this has been a lot of information i'm gonna go back through and grab bits and pieces so that good yeah i can uh put a lot in the show notes so if people are looking you work for a specific organization and don't yes. take onboard new clients. If someone's looking for someone in their local community to help them, what would, would they search up trauma therapist or what should yeah. they be looking for? I, I think that would be a really good starting point. Um, and if specifically they could look up EMDR and, and find out more about that and then look up therapists that are actually trained. EMDR requires a special law. It's a specialization. Okay. And 
Um, the cool thing about EMDR is that it also requires ongoing consultation the entire time you're doing it. So as an EMDR therapist, for me to maintain that, um, I have to have consultation once a month with other therapists who are also doing it, which is cool, right? Because then we get yeah. to, we also get to have that support network. Um, but it's just, um, or anybody who's doing any kind of work with trauma, there's so many great things that, that can be done with it. But um, if you just look up trauma therapy, you should be able to find somebody pretty quickly. Well, this is amazing. Thank you for sharing your expertise today. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so grateful. And I will see you um, at 5 a.m. in a parking lot somewhere to work out sometime. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sounds good. All right, take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.